Hello, and welcome to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. One of the things that I and others in the sports analytics space get asked a lot is how to break into this field. The question often comes from students or their parents or someone wanting to change careers. And I'm always happy to talk about different options, offer advice, tell people my path. I also feel like sometimes I'm not the best person to answer some of those questions because I was in college 20 years ago and Moneyball wasn't even a book yet, let alone a great Brad Pitt movie. And the possibilities, my options of studying, working in sports and data were very different. Uh, so because of that, we try to get a wide variety of people on the show with a range of backgrounds and experience in sports and ages to help answer questions and tell people who are interested in sports analytics about career possibilities or show people who are just fans or someone wanting to learn what is inside of this field that can sometimes be a little insular. So on this show, it's Expected Value episode number 63, the Willie Lanier episode for someone who grew up in the Kansas City area. Uh, we're talking with someone much closer to the beginning of her sports analytics career. Her name is Amelia Probst, a data scientist and writer with Pro Football Focus. She recently graduated from Cornell. She's already worked in football, baseball, even lacrosse analytics. We'll talk about how she got into sports analytics originally, what she studied at Cornell, uh, some of the skills and tools that are useful for a sports analytics career, her time working with the Mets, what she does at PFF, uh, writing with data, using data on projects, and a whole lot more. Then producer Sergio De La Esprilla will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with PFF data scientist Amelia Probst. We're joined now on expected value by Amelia Probst, data scientist at PFF. Amelia, welcome to the show. Let's start at the beginning for you, career-wise. How did you get interested in sports analytics in the first place? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so I always played sports growing up. I played field hockey, volleyball, and I loved math. And so I was actually an engineer at Cornell for two years and then decided that wasn't for me and switched out of engineering into statistics. And I wanted to find like a way to combine sports and math and Sports analytics was the the perfect marriage for that. So the major is interesting. People, are, I get asked a lot. You probably do too. What should I major in? If this is where I want to go, um, so started with the engineering. Why the switch to statistics? What was kind of the process of figuring out what the best major was for you to get into this field? Yeah. So I originally thought engineering because you can do a lot of things with engineering, but I realized that I did not like physics. I did not like more of the science aspect, but I really enjoyed the the math part and I was good at it. Um, so I think statistics is just a good way to get like a good background on math. So like knowing how to model like different statistical distributions as well as like coding skills. Um, and I really learned how to explain and visualize what I wanted um, to get across like in my projects or homeworks, things like that. Um, Cause I think that's a really crucial part that people don't tell you about um, that you need to be able to explain to people who maybe don't know as much math as you do. And I think that's a valuable skill that I, I also learned in, in college. What other skills, tools are useful or have been useful to you learning, whether it's in college, afterward, what else has helped you so far? Yeah, so beyond programming languages like coding basics like R or Python, um, 
And like I said, communication skills, being able to convey ideas in a way that anyone can understand and making it pretty simple, whether that's through like a graphic or um, just a simple explanation, um, as well as public speaking, because sometimes you have to talk in front of executives or um, like people like scouts, people like that. So they they don't want to know all the modeling details, all the like probabilities. They don't care about that. They just want to know what the end result is. So really knowing how to explain how you got there is is important. Yeah, what's uh, we we talk about this all the time on the show about communication is super important. You got a key or two that comes to you that is this is one of the things I try to think about if I'm trying to communicate these complex ideas to maybe an audience that's less familiar with them? Yeah, I think mainly I just try to simplify it as much as possible um, and make it just really easy for people to understand in as few words as possible Um, because no one wants to read like a huge long paragraph or try to decipher a graph. Um, So just making it as easy as possible for anyone to look at and to be like, yep, I know what they're saying or trying to convey with that. and just take it from there. That's that's my main goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you were part of Cornell Sports Analytics Club, and I love that these clubs are springing up at colleges all over the place. It's a little self-explanatory, but what does one of those clubs do? Because obviously it's not academic in the same way your major is. What does the one at Cornell, at least, what does that sports analytics club do? Sure. So my role was mainly, I just attended a lot of information sessions. Um, so like they had the Yankees come or people from like other sports teams, organizations come and like speak to us about their roles um, at the organizations. So that was really interesting to hear their point of view and how maybe their organization or team is different from, from other ones. Um, and there's also like R and Python workshops to like learn coding and use like real world data um, in those languages. Those are the main things I did. You could also do like research with some professors or um, other side projects if you were really interested in, um, in that. And I did also do some lacrosse analytics related research while I was at Cornell as like independent study, um, not associated with Cornell sports analytics, but there are plenty of pathways and there are definitely more professors than you think that are involved or interested in in supporting you in um, any sports analytics research. So I would definitely recommend just reaching out to like coaches or professors or anyone that you think might want your help. I have to ask about the lacrosse angle because I mean, I'm one of those where I'll watch some lacrosse NCAA tournament time for men's and women's, and that's about it. You know, growing up in the Midwest where it wasn't much of a sport uh, on the whole at the high school level. What's the what state of analytics in lacrosse? What can you study there? Yeah, so I would say it's still pretty high level in terms of data collection. Like they don't have all the like tracking data like the NFL or um, NBA or other other sports do. Um, so I would say it's still pretty high level, like looking at shot locations, assist locations, where goals are scored from. Um, assists, turnovers, you know, like the basic statistics. And there are more things you can do with it, but you really have to have someone looking at the film and tracking some of these things like by hand to really do it. Um, So I would say that it still has a ways to go, but is also a really exciting area to work in because you could be one of the first people to like, you know, work with their tracking data or things like that. And I would say in terms of sports science, which I also sometimes include in like sports analytics, they they are they do have um, metrics that they use for that to like look at athletes health and, um, you know, endurance, those kind of things. And I think a lot of sports do that as well, like using um, 
I think the company is called Catapult and they have like these vests that they wear and like tracks certain metrics. So I think they're pretty up to speed on those kind of things, but they definitely have a ways to go in terms of data collection. And Cornell's got one of the better lacrosse programs in the country. Won some national titles on the men's side. Women's team's been around a long time. Men were runner up last year. Are they, or those top, the top collegiate lacrosse programs, are they doing some of these things? I'm just like, I, I have no idea. What Are they starting to get into that space as much as they can? Yeah, I think so. And I think it really varies from team to team. So I actually worked with Cornell's men's lacrosse team, and I'm still working with them this season, um, doing data analysis work for them. And um, yeah, like I said, mainly like looking at film and getting insights from there and like hand tracking everything. Um, I think the top teams, like I know Maryland also has someone that does data analytics work for them. Um, so I think it varies a lot and it depends on if there's any interest from students or other people that just really care about lacrosse. But otherwise, um, I don't think there's too much involvement, unfortunately, but hopefully that will change in the, the next few years. So you had an internship with the New York Mets. First, I want to ask, how did you get that? Because I mean, like, or what do you think caught their eye? Because obviously these internships are highly sought after. Uh, people are always, you know, again, I hear from people asking, how can I get this? How can I get that? Um, how did you get it? Any tips for someone trying to get one of these, you know, high value internships? Yeah. So honestly, I didn't know anybody at the Mets. I just applied and like, you know, went through the normal interview process and the application there's a lot of like problem sets. So it's either like coding or stats related, just showing like your thought process on the problems that they give you and how you go about solving them. Um, and so I've worked in other sports before, like I said, like I've worked with the in lacrosse and um, football a little bit. So I've had experience in other sports before I worked with the Mets. So that might have appealed to them to have a different perspective on um, baseball. Um, I think the way I, I solved problems or the problems they gave me um, was not necessarily different, but I just gave them a very good overview of how I would solve problems for them. And like, uh, I think I'm pretty organized. So it showed that I have like the communication skills and organization skills that they are looking for. Um, and during the interview process, they also like give you feedback on your code or the answers that you provided to their problem sets. And I feel like being open to feedback is very important because there are people that work at these teams, organizations that, um, you know, have advanced degrees and have a lot of experience in what they do. So listening to them and like really valuing their feedback is important um, because, you know, you're not going to be working alone. You're going to be working on a team, um, most likely. So I think that's something that's really important as well. Um, and I did have like applicable coursework and um, experience and like data skills that they were looking for. So I think all of those things put together um, led me to getting the position. But I think beyond that, like advice I would give to people looking um, at these positions is just put yourself out there, reach out to people that are in positions you may want to be in. Um, like if you want to work for a baseball team, reach out to someone who works for them, like through LinkedIn or if you know you have a mutual friend or something like that, um, that's how I've gained a lot of connections in the sports analytics world as well, and it's paid off for me. And so, um, I think if you could do that, then you're on the right track. And I don't know, for me, it was always interesting to hear about different people and their roles and what they do in their day to day work, um, just to see if you might like it because you don't even know if you're gonna like it until you <laughs> actually get into it or talk about it with someone. So I think it's really valuable. Um, to have personal relationships with people who can help you get to where you want to go and, you know, give you advice and feedback. 
So it sounds like, I mean, I'm sure there were baseball questions in the process, but it sounds like it was almost more of a kind of how you think, how you process info. Like, and I've heard this from other people too. It sounds like that's almost as important as, you know, knowing what, whatever, seam shifted velocity something is. It's the process as much as the end product, I guess, is kind of what they're looking for. Yeah, for sure. Like, I wouldn't say I knew that much about baseball before, at least analytically wise, before I worked for the Mets. And I think they realize that not everyone is going to be like a, a baseball savant. So they know that, like, you might have to learn a bit on the job and that's okay as long as you have you know, the main skills that they're looking for, whether that's like communication or coding or anything like that. Um, and yeah, they don't expect you to be the perfect candidate. They just want you to be able to be open to feedback, open to learning and yeah, just do the best you can in your time there. So in this internship with the Mets without, you know, we're not trying to like unearth state secrets about what's going on there, but what do you generally do? What are you able to learn and do while you're with the Mets? Yeah. So I mainly worked on two projects. I was there since I was only there for about three months um, and I was remote. Um, So my two main projects were like which teams got the most value out of the draft. And so we had a certain way that we calculated that that I won't go into. But um, and then my other main project was seeing like which variables predicted pitch spin rate and axis spin axis the most. Um, And so I also worked with some of the other people on my team because it was a wide range of people that did like sports science to like maybe more physics related things to what I mentioned. Um, So I worked with them as well, kind of just giving them feedback or listening to their ideas. Um, And I also worked with the GM and the assistant GM on some of these projects. Um, So that was exciting. Like I felt like I was a part of the organization, even though I was only there for a few months and I felt like my opinions um, and work are really valued. So um, I think if you can work for a company that does that, then it makes your job a lot easier and um, a lot more enjoyable. So the idea on that second project was something like, we want to emphasize this kind of pitch break and we're trying to figure out if, I'll make it up like arm angle or something correlates to that so we can go try to find pitchers who are doing certain things or maybe undervalued for certain reasons that's kind of the rough idea is that yeah and I don't think it was just for pitchers that they don't have I think it's including pitchers they already have to see what makes them all different and what makes them successful and I think at least in baseball they're still kind of figuring that out um so that was part of their process to learn more about pitches and how pitching works and you know not beyond like just the basic stats um And at least when I worked for the Mets, they had a ton of data. So it could be a little overwhelming if you've never like worked with that much data and you don't know what everything means. But um, yeah, it was still really exciting and cool to like experience that. And um, I don't know if my work ended up helping them in any way, but I do hope so. That's right. If they win the World Series this year, then we're going to give you credit for it. You should take credit at least. Uh, And yeah, we see the same thing. We work with teams, a lot of teams, 20 plus teams on our side and Everyone's trying to figure out, yeah, the skeletal movement and all this different data they've gotten the last year or two. And I don't know if anyone's cracked it. I don't know if anybody will, but it's just trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, so you joined Pro Football Focus last summer. Most of our listeners are probably familiar with PFF, but in general, at the high level, what does PFF do? Yeah, so PFF provides data to a lot of NFL, college football teams and consumers to better inform them on American football. That's my basic summary. And I would say a lot of the data that we have and provide leads to like either betting insights or we create grades with them. And then all of these things we um, produce content with. So whether that's like articles or podcasts um, or other 
other things. Um, we use this data to like show teams where they can improve, what they do well, um, things along that line. So our main focus is on the data and providing these data and insights to teams and consumers as well. So as a data scientist, what is what does your role generally entail at PFF? Yeah, so I, I would say I do a variety of things. I work on long-term projects, like for example, um, I didn't work on this, but I'm just giving an example so people can understand a little better. Um, our mock draft simulator, like doing things like that, that definitely take a lot more time and effort and collaboration with like our IT and engineering teams, product development teams um, to like get that out there and get it running. Um, and then I also create content with our data, like I mentioned. I, I've been doing power rankings and some other um, side research projects. So um, during the off season, I do have a good bit of free time. So I get to investigate some problems or um, topics that I'm interested in. Like my first project at PFF was looking at offensive line volatility. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool that I had the access to the data and the time and resources um, to do that. And I was encouraged to do that. So um, I think that was that was really fun for me as like my first project at PFF. Um, and overall, just getting insights from the data that we have and seeing if we can you know, come up with anything new that might be useful to teams or consumers um, for them to take a look at. The mock draft simulator is interesting. We're obviously a couple of weeks after the draft and all these simulations and should this guy be there? Is he not going to be there? You know, you hear a lot of people, I don't know, some people who don't understand it often just generally don't understand, like, how could you possibly say yeah, this percent chance of being around here or whatever? Can you elaborate a little on just kind of what goes into one of those models and trying to predict something that is so unpredictable? Yeah, that's a great question. So obviously nothing is perfect. Like no simulation is going to be perfect, but the idea is the more simulations you do. So basically having like a mock draft with all the teams and whether that's including trades or not, basically you're doing drafts like thousands and thousands of times and seeing what the outcomes of these drafts are going to be. Um, so the more you do like, the, the idea is the likelihood will increase that these things will actually happen. Um, obviously, we know in this draft especially, maybe that didn't happen as much just due to the volume of trades and everything. But yeah, we just try to predict um, or see what teams are going to do based on you know their team needs, their team strengths and weaknesses, um, maybe what their opponents in their conference may do, um, plenty of other factors. And I think there are still factors that we don't know about or just don't include because there's no tangible way to like quantify it. And I think that's something we're always working on and looking to improve. Um, and that that's included in like a lot of our models, not just the mock draft simulator. Um, so, and I think that's something that people give us feedback on or like give us criticism for, like you can't account for, you know, X, Y, Z random variable, but yeah, that's true, but that's because there's probably no way to quantify it yet. And even if we did, it's not going to be perfect. The offensive line volatility article that you mentioned, I read that, which is super interesting. And I think it's always it's always interesting to try to figure out how to quantify these positions that obviously don't have your say, traditional counting stats and things. How do you go about doing that? How do you, what is the, where does the volatility come into play? What did you learn from uh, that article, I know it's a lot of questions, but I guess we'll just start with kind of how do you go about attacking uh, the study of offensive linemen for this piece? Yeah, so first I kind of just did a, a high-level overview of the data, like what I was looking at, what I had to work with, and what data I could use to solve the problem that I was looking at. So like for offensive line volatility, basically I wanted to see which offensive linemen 
are consistent like season after season or game after game and so um whether that's really good consistent play or really bad consistent play it didn't really matter um so basically uh, the way I go about it is kind of just organizing my thoughts and like outlining the steps I need to take so like usually I'll be organizing and like filtering the data whatever I need to do with that and then creating a basic model that would predict their their volatility based on their past season results um and then from there I would probably get like feedback from like my people on my team or my manager, whoever, because there are definitely things I can probably miss and other people would miss, um, like things that I didn't think to include. Um, Like, for example, if you want to include like the weather, like that may affect offensive linemen's like uh, feet and like their traction and therefore their volatility or their performance. Um, So I think, yeah, getting feedback and then, you know, just kind of continuing to iterate on those same things, improving the model till you're, happy or generally happy with it and then from there like when I I wanted to make an article just so other people could see my work and what I put into it and just to get other people's feedback outside of PFF as well and obviously there's negative and positive feedback but um, that's something you quickly learn not to ignore but to just take it with a grain of salt and um, just roll with it Um, and yeah just make it easy to convey to other people and see if other people find it interesting um, even though it's not like a main project at PFF, it was just kind of a little side project that I wanted to do. Um, it was a good like first foray into my work at PFF and seeing um, what I could do for them. What was the key takeaway that uh, whether surprised you or something you learned uh, from that study? I don't think there's anything that really surprised me. I think the main takeaway is like the guys that you know are good are the least volatile and I think that seems pretty obvious but until you really do the work on it you don't know um so yeah I think the guys who are really consistent in like you know their footwork and their handwork and all of that are the ones who either are like consistently bad or consistently good it's it really doesn't go any other way than that and I think it makes a lot of sense yeah when you were writing curious about the process for writing the weekly power rankings because Obviously, there's 32 teams. There's a lot going on. You're trying to not only just talk about them intelligently, but order them. What was your process for doing that every week? Yeah, so I worked with three other um, or three interns that were at PFF at the time, Haley, Arjun, and Judah. And the four of us would get together um, Monday nights after the Monday night game and rank each team. Um, So that would obviously be somewhat subjective, but for the most part, we tried to keep it as objective as possible using data. Um, But yeah, so we do that. And then um, we tried to keep it as short as possible in terms of text. We wanted more visualizations and less text because personally, I don't wanna be scoring through like a five page long article. So we kept it short and sweet. Um, So we just wrote a few little blurbs about each team's performance in the past week. Maybe some things they did well, some things they could improve upon. Maybe if there's any injuries, things like that, that may have affected them. And then we created graphics that would help explain all of these points or just add to the points that we were making. Um, and every week we would also do like a biggest riser and a biggest faller of the week. So that would be like each team that, um, or one team that improved the most, one team that declined a lot from their previous week's performance. Um, and I think another thing we tried to include was looking at injuries and how can we quantify that a little bit more. And so the way we use that was looking at PFF's war metric, which is just wins above replacement. So based on injuries, um, how much war did each team lose 
to injuries throughout the season or week to week, things like that. Um, and that just gives you a better idea of the value of the players that they really lost. Um, and obviously war is not perfect either, but I think we can see that the players like, you know, Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen, like a lot of the quarterbacks have uh, a way higher war than, you know, a kicker or other players that maybe don't contribute as much, which makes a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, I think war was a really good way to look at injuries um, this past season and maybe we'll do something similar uh, this season. We'll see. So much of, I think, this industry is hard to see and learn about from the outside. Now that you've been in football analytics world for about a year, what what have you learned? What maybe surprised you is what have you learned about football analytics and or the industry in that time? I think one thing I've learned is there's just so much data to work with, at least at PFF personally, um, that sometimes it can be hard to narrow it down and like really see what's most important or what people will really care about. Because there may be some things that I think are cool and interesting, but you know, consumers are teams that don't necessarily care about that. So really finding the things that you think will, um, you know, give you the most value and you also enjoy doing. Um, and I think working in sports analytics is still, there's still a lot of work to do. And I really enjoy that because there's always new problems, new insights. Um, and I think that's a really fun thing that I get to do. And I feel like at least for football, like we still have a lot of work to do. And I still feel like, not I'm not at the forefront of football analytics, but, you know, getting there and hopefully I can contribute more. And I think that's really exciting. Um, and I think I mentioned this as well, like people may not like what you write or believe or agree with your opinions. And that's something I didn't, I haven't necessarily encountered just because I haven't written content as like my job um, before working for PFF. So I think that's something that I've had to adjust to a little bit. And like I said, take it with a grain of salt. Um, so that's been a little bit of an adjustment. But overall, I feel like sports analytics in general is really collaborative and I really enjoy that um, because there's always new, people always come up with new metrics or new models or whatever. And it's really cool to see what people come up with and um, where that takes them. So I think it's a really exciting time to be in sports analytics. So having worked now with the Mets for a while, now working in football analytics, I'm curious how you see the differences, compare and contrast, you know, baseball, football, obviously very different sports, but the analytics and the, the data that you have in those two spaces. Sure. I would say it's pretty similar, um, but baseball is definitely a little more advanced in terms of modeling and when it comes to like sports science, um, while NFL or like football is more focused on like player tracking and um, baseball, like they just don't have the need for that really. Um, so I think baseball is probably 10, if not more years um, advanced than football. And so football still kind of, you know, catching up to them and figuring out ways that they can differentiate themselves from baseball. Cause I think a lot of the inspiration that people took for football was from baseball, but baseball is definitely a more individual sport while um, Football is definitely a more team sport, obviously. But I think one thing I've learned, especially with like the offensive line volatility um, that I mentioned, um, like if one person on the offensive line isn't doesn't do their job, the whole offensive line usually does poorly. While in baseball, that's not necessarily the case. Like one person can make a mistake. And yeah, it affects the team as a whole, but it doesn't really affect other players as much. So I think baseball is a lot easier to isolate the players um, individually and see like their contribution to a team while for players that like work together, like offensive defensive line, it is a lot 
more difficult to just grade them separately and look at them as an individual just because um, they are a unit. Um, so I think that's one thing that I've I've learned and seen the difference. Um, and I think another interesting thing is baseball attracts more young players like college and high school just because they can draft them that much younger. Um, so they just have a lot more data when it comes to those players. And um, baseball just ha- I would say baseball has more data and more advanced data, like, you know, the X, Y, Z location of the ball at every second and that kind of thing. Um, so it was really cool to work with. But like I said before, it can kind of be overwhelming, um, especially at first, but you get used to it. Um, but yeah, I think there are a lot, still lots of opportunities in football and baseball. And um, yeah, it just, it was exciting to work in both and see the differences and the similarities. And I think I took aspects of what I did for the Mets into what I'm doing now. So um, it's cool to see. All right. We wrap things up with our playing favorite segment where we go through a number of your favorites to get to know you a little bit more. What is your favorite number and why? I would say my favorite number is 17 because Josh Allen, I'm a Bills fan. So had to do it. All right. Speaking of that, you have Bills Mafia, hashtag Bills Mafia in your Twitter bio. After you have a favorite Bills memory experience, something that sticks with you? I would say in 2022 when we beat the Patriots 47-17 in the wildcard round, that was pretty fun. And breaking the playoff drought, that was a good time too. Those are probably my fondest of memories. As a Dolphins fan, I can affirm (laughs) that it's always great to beat the Patriots no matter what. So uh, favorite athlete when you were growing up? I would say my favorite athlete was Sean Johnson, the Olympic gymnast, um, because I don't know, just a female that I could look up to. And I had never got into gymnastics, but I was like, oh, that would be really cool. Like if I could do all those flips and things. Um, But I guess if I had to choose like a male athlete, I've always really liked the Mannings, like Peyton, Eli. Um, They just seem like really genuine guys and um, just really nice people. And Obviously, they were good players, so that helps them too. Um, yeah, just really fun to watch. Yeah. Yep. Your favorite thing about Ithaca, where Cornell's located in upstate New York? It was just so beautiful during all the seasons. I would say it was beautiful, but fall, um, it was just so beautiful with all the trees turning, and there are tons of waterfalls in the Ithaca area. So you could go hiking and see all these different waterfalls and like see all the leaves turning. It was just, it was just cool. It's something that is not as easily accessible to me where I am now. Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I went up there in the fall uh, a couple times and yeah, Finger Lakes and all that stuff. It's all, all beautiful and great to enjoy. Finally, your favorite, uh, you have a, how did I get here moment? Maybe, you know, early in your career, but just some moment where it's like, Hey, this is pretty cool. I got to do this, ran to this person, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, so I'm a mentor for, um, this organization called women in sports tech and I, they're mentors. I'm a mentor with other women and men, but mainly women who have worked in sports for 20 plus years and just hearing their stories about how they got to where they are. And most of them don't work in sports analytics like I do, but still hearing like their background and how sports has changed. And since I was born, basically, um, it's cool to hear that and see that I am kind of like the new generation of like women working in sports. And I think that was very eye opening for me. Um, and I would say I've had I've had plenty of those moments where people will reach out to me, like wanting to hear about how I got to PFF and all of those things. And that kind of like I'm I'm 22, about to be 23. So that like seeing people reach out to me when I'm still early in my career is um, very eye opening and um, just makes me think back to 
not too long ago, obviously, when I was still in college and doing a similar thing, <laughs> I like to give back to um, like college students or high school students and um, like just tell them about my experience and give them some advice and feedback. Um, and that's been fun for me to do because I know when I was in their shoes, um, I was looking for those opportunities too. So um, it's interesting being on the other side of, of the phone or the Zoom call um, and just remembering like how I got to where I am. And that's one of the, the key things we want to do with the show. So we appreciate you joining us here. Amelia Probst, data scientist with PFF. Thank you for coming on Expected Value. Back in the True Media studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Amelia Probst for joining us on the show. You can follow her on Twitter at Amelia Probst, A-M-E-L-I-A-P-R-O-B-S-T. And check out her writing on PFF. We have a link in our show notes to her archive and also to the offensive line volatility article that she mentioned. Joined now by producer Sergio De La Espriella. Sergio, thanks as always for your work on the show. What did you uh, pull out of that conversation with Amelia? You know, Paul, um, I'm, I'm starting to think, is it correlation or is it causation where Am, are, am I and are you and I and, and those who help us book guests for the show, are we are we booking guests that have that similar, you know, we like diverse background mentality that we have? Or is <laughs> it just in the fact that we're booking all these guests, it turns out that everyone just has a really unique background because um, this interview with Amelia was great. I loved it. Um, she's, you know, had an engineering background. She's 22, um, which makes me feel like a dinosaur. Um, I can't, <laughs> I don't know what it makes you feel, but yeah, I'm dead. <laughs> I'm dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's crazy. And the fact that she's been able to get to where she is in this field so young, I mean, it's difficult for any 22 year old to get to the point where she is so quickly, but let alone being a woman in a male dominated field, that's just all the more impressive, um, at that point. So I just thought it was a great, um, episode and listening to, how she got to where she was, all the different sports and all the different work she put in, you know, grinding and and talking to people that came to speak at her school and taking advantage of projects and situations. And it's that idea of, you know, using your free time as a way to better yourself in your career. While that may not be for everyone, clearly it's something that Amelia values and and it's paid off for her so far. And, and I can only imagine the heights that she can go to someone being so young. I can't believe I'm speaking like this. I'm 27. I'm acting like I'm, <laughs> I'm acting like I'm towards the end of my career and seeing someone right. come up. Like, you know, she's, she's, she's just like me, like just a little younger, you know, it's crazy. Um, so I thought it was a great episode and, and it was nice to hear that kind of background and, and those kind of, um, you know, things that she did. We, we have a lot of people, like you said, ask you like, um, you know, what can I do from college kids and stuff? Well, Amelia literally just showed you what you could do. She described right. all the different outlets she can she can go into, the different sports. Um, there's no one way to achieve working in this sports analytics field. And she is yet more proof that you can be successful at any age. And, you know, I'm sure she's going to be even more successful as her career continues. Yeah, I think she checked almost every box on just kind of the list of things that I and others will generally tell people to do, you know, in college or at the beginning of your career from whether it's a sports analytics club, whether it's working with teams, whether it's reaching out to people at, at clubs or whatever it might be, all those different things are always good. Uh, and the backgrounds question is interesting. I mean, she talked about how, you know, working in baseball helped her in football in some ways. And I go all the way back to like the very first episode I ever did of this show. 
uh, was with Daniel Adler, who's now an assistant GM with the Twins. And he said, you know, when he's looking at hiring, he's not necessarily looking for baseball knowledge. It helps, obviously, in a lot of ways. And you have to know something about baseball. But the ability, as Amelia talked about, what helped her get the job with the Mets, the ability to think, the ability to process information, to problem solve is, I don't know if it's more important, but I, I, I do think it's, it's more important sometimes than like an extreme knowledge of the specific sport. And obviously different jobs and people are going to you know want different things, but it, it's super helpful. You know, we've had someone on the show, I think said, you, know, you don't even have to like, you definitely don't have to major in sports analytics and your projects don't even necessarily explicitly have to be sports. Uh, it helps, you know, sometimes because you just learn to think in different ways, but there's just so many different ways to uh, get into the field. And it's so young, you know, I mean, again, this field has been around for under two decades, you know, especially at the academic level, we're talking closer to 10 years or so. Uh, so there's just lots of different options, whether it's stats majors, math majors, you know, more computer science, data science, analytics, all these different things, musical uh, lots theater, of possibilities, you know. Music, musical theater, communications, <laughs> like we have here, you know, all those traditional, you know, analytics exactly. type of backgrounds. Because that's exactly what you think of when you think of who's putting together right. the PFF data, you know, a, right. <laughs> someone yeah. who didn't want to sing Sweeney Todd six nights a week. <laughs> right. If you can't harmonize well, then you can't process data. No, exactly. Exactly. I did love speaking of that PFF stuff. I did like how we did get a little bit of an inside track as to how they decide their power rankings mm -hmm. and, you know, their, their editorial pieces, their content stuff. Uh, because I'd be lying if I didn't say that with my closest group of friends, I would, would be lying if conversations didn't come up about what is the process and how they decide these power yeah. rankings, for example. Yeah. Now, granted, those are usually conversations had when friends of those teams, the, the teams right. that those friends or fans of are not doing too well. And, and they kind of are looking for an outlet in terms of a scapegoat, if you will. Yep. Um, but it was nice to see that, you know, it, it is a blend of like I was trying to tell them. It is a blend of, you know, the analytics. What are the numbers and the metrics say um, both PFF? Uh, come up with and also taken from other sources and stuff. Um, and also, you know, watching the game, because as we I say this every episode, the thesis of true of expected value is that it is about combining what you see with the numbers. You need to work with the numbers and not either completely ignore the numbers or just solely blindly look at the numbers. It's all a uh, a marriage of sorts. And so it was nice to see that someone working at such a reputable knowledgeable mainstream media outlet sports data outlet like pff also has that same um mentality that we do here at true media and at expected value yeah talking about you know their mock draft simulator uh, this came up during the draft where you know, espn had that uh you know will levis had a whatever one percent chance of, of falling as far as he fell or something yeah and numbers like that always raise questions which on one hand is fair and on the other hand like I've been on the other side of those metrics when I was at ESPN and just want to make sure people know, like, we're not making this up. Like, right. There is a logic and real data and a ton of work goes into these metrics. There's always going to be weird situations or, you know, we're not saying they're perfect, but there's reason behind them. You know, we can explain why uh, team A is favor favored over team B according to this power index. And it's because of you know, these reasons, where's the game played? recent for whatever it is there's there's reasons behind everything it's not just some arbitrary number uh, and again sometimes it spits out numbers that you don't like that nobody likes that don't line up with betting odds or whatever but you got to at least understand and that's that's part of the key is to understand the strengths and weaknesses of models and as you compare all these different models you know you can make adjustments make things better make things more accurate whatever it might be so you know 
most of this stuff is not made up is kind of what I'm trying to say. Exactly. That specific example too of Will Levis, like personally, I guess this is where I take my victory lap, but three months ago as someone who watches college football religiously, I said, <laughs> I like Will Levis. I don't think he's a first round quarterback. And people were like, oh no. And of course the draft narrative and all that stuff. But I think that that's kind of where we're getting at with the point, right? It's not that those numbers were wrong, right? It's not that the, oh, he had a 0.5% chance of dropping past pick 28 or whatever the statistic mm-hmm. may be. Like, yeah, based on the numbers and based on draft trends and people, you know, based on history and the fourth rank or all those things that made sense. But you right. also have to bring into account the outside non-numbers influence, like a general manager or a scout saying, I went to dinner with this guy to see how he was and didn't right. like XYZ. I'm not saying that happened with Will right. Levis. I'm just, for example, things like yeah. that, that you can't quantify with the numbers. That's why it's a marriage. That's yep. why There's you always, have to use them. Always going to be things you can't quantify. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which is fine. You, you do it as best you can and you kind of go from there and the numbers will, you know, eventually it all comes out in the wash sort of with the numbers right. when you get your sample size big enough. But sometimes it's just, yeah, there's just weird stuff because, you know, there were 10 things that could have happened differently in that first round and Levis goes in the whatever top 15. If someone's willing to give up one more second round pick to move, you know, I don't know, whatever it was. It's, it's just that different. And those are the challenges, especially I think even more so for the draft than anything that's on the field, because there's so much subjectivity that goes into it. Yeah. And listen, if, if it was scripted and we knew exactly what was going to happen, it would be AEW. And we are, <laughs> a, we are a lovely Tony Khan owned brand, but we are not that owned brand. So that's not the business that we're in, you know? Right. Right. Different sort of sport. So, all right. Thanks, Sergio. Thank you to Amelia one more time for joining us on the show. We have lots of other football guests in our archives, including several big data bowl winners from the NFL, uh, former NFL GM, Mike Tannenbaum, Eric Eager, who also used to work at PFF uh, before Amelia was there. So you can check those out. Uh, Subscribe, rate, review the show wherever you get podcasts. We always appreciate that and share it however you can. That helps us continue to grow as well. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at True Media Sports. You can email the show, expectedvalue at truemedianetworks.com. On behalf of producer Sergio de la Esprilla and everyone here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thank you for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world.